Thank you everyone for joining us and welcome to the Albert M. Greenfield Forum in the History of Science. My name is Bob Akashrafi. I'm the director of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology and Medicine. We have a terrific program for you today about the history of the National Academy of Sciences and its place in America and in American democracy. I'm delighted that the authors of that history have joined us to share a glimpse into their book, which is nearing completion. Each of them will make a presentation and then they will take your questions. Our speakers today are, in order of their presentations, Peter Westwick, Daniel Kellis, and Ruth Schwartz-Cowan. Peter Westwick is adjunct professor of history at the University of Southern California and director of the Aerospace History Project in the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. Peter is the author of Into the Black, JPL, and the American Space Program, 1976 to 2004, The National Labs, Science in an American System, 1947 to 1974, and is co-editor of Blue Sky Metropolis, the Aerospace Century in Southern California. Uh, for his works, he's won awards from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the American Astronomical Society, and the Forum for History of Science in America. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Then Daniel Kevlis is the Stanley Woodward Professor of History Emeritus at Yale University. He works on the history of science in America, including physics and eugenics. Among the books that Dan has authored and co-authored are The Physicists, The History of a Scientific Community in Modern America, In the Name of Eugenics, Genetics and the Uses of Human Heredity, and The Baltimore Case, A Trial of Politics, Science, and Character, among the many ways that Dan's work has been recognized are the George Sarton Medal of the History of Science Society for a Lifetime of Scholarly Achievement and the Watson Davis Prize from the History of Science Society for the Best Book for a Broader Public. And Ruth Schwartz-Cowan is Janice and Julian Baer's Professor Emerita at the University of Pennsylvania. She works on a broad range of topics, including the history of technology, genetics, and gender and science and technology. Ruth is the author of, among many other works, We'll work for Mother, The Ironies of Household Technology from the Open Hearth of the Microwave, and A Social History of American Technology with the second edition co-written with Matt Hirsch. The Society for the History of Technology has awarded Ruth their highest prize, the Leonardo da Vinci Medal for Lifetime Contributions in Research, Teaching, and Publications, as well as the Edelstein Prize for the best new book in the field. And the Society for the Social Studies of Science has awarded Ruth their J.D. Bernal Prize for distinguished contribution to the field. But of course, more important than any of that, Ruth was among a handful of people who launched the consortium back in the early aughts. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. Uh, Peter, please. Thanks, Babak and the consortium for hosting us. And uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us here today. So I'll give a brief introduction, and then we'll uh, launch into the talks. So our talks today are on the history of the US National Academy of Sciences, the Academy invited the three of us to write an independent history of it in, or, in honor of its 150th anniversary in 2013. And we agreed to undertake the work because we believe that the Academy is a vital scientific institution, both for the United States and the world. And our research has abundantly confirmed this belief. So why is the history of the National Academy of Sciences important and interesting? The Academy is a hybrid enterprise, part honorific society, Part research and advisory institution. Its Congressional Charter of 1863 directed it to advise the federal government whenever it was asked. 
The creation in World War I of the National Research Council hugely expanded the pool of expertise by enlisting non-academy members on studies for private sponsors between the wars and then increasingly for the federal government uh, after World War II. Today, the academy is known as the National Academies, plural, of sciences, engineering, and medicine for reasons we'll get into. Together with the NRC, each year it deploys more than 6,000 volunteer experts on 600 committees, advising the federal government and others on topics ranging from astronomy to zoology. Those committees produce over 200 reports per year, or about one every workday. To oversee this effort, the Academy employs more than 1,000 staff and oversees an annual budget of about $300 million. But that budget is only a fraction of the value that the Academy provides to the nation because those 6,000 committee members are unpaid volunteers provided with only the cost of their out-of-pocket expenses. The U.S. Academy differed from science academies abroad in several ways. For one thing, it arrived late. Scientific academies were a temporary bridge between the medieval university and the modern research university, providing a primary home for science in the 17th and 18th centuries until universities reformed and reclaimed their predominant role. The creation of the U.S. Academy in 1863, after the age of academies had ended, might thus appear as an anachronism. However, the U.S. Academy over time developed new ways to serve both science and state. The U.S. Academy is by the government, but not of the government. It is not an official state institution, although, as we'll see, it had some ambiguity here that allowed it to play both sides. Unlike, say, the Russian and Chinese academies, uh, it did not have its own extensive network of research institutes and labs. Perhaps its most distinguishing characteristics was its combination of the advisory role and its independence of government, even if that autonomy was qualified. Uh, the NRC in particular uh, was a unique innovation, a giant engine to channel scientific expertise into public policy, whose influence is evident in the fact that several longer standing academies in other countries have recently tried to copy it. So instead of an outdated relic, the U.S. Academy has become the model. The Academy is largely unknown to the American public, but it, is, it has played a far more consequential role than is recognized. What we have discovered has transformed our understanding of the Academy and its influence on the daily lives of Americans, ranging from the whiskey we buy to the internet connections we all use to log on to this session. The Academy's acquisition of influence, though, was neither inevitable nor easy. It has consistently navigated the twin difficulties of providing policy advice while avoiding entanglement with politics and of advancing the interests of both science and the U.S. government and it has grappled with several tensions inherent in its status as an elite, private, autonomous institution attempting to speak for science and technology in a pluralist democratic society. Although the Academy from the outset enjoyed a degree of autonomy, it has not been insulated from the larger sweep of events. And the price for engaging major policy issues has been exposure to the buffeting winds of democratic politics. But that very exposure provides an opportunity the Academy is an exceptional vehicle to tell the story of American science and technology over the last 150 years. So we'll try here to give you some flavor of this in the short talks to follow. And our talks will follow our basic division of labor on the project as a whole. Dan covering from the founding of the Academy amid the Civil War up to World War II, and then Ruth and I covering from World War II up to 2013, uh, with Ruth handling topics related to the life sciences, the social sciences, and then me handling physical sciences related topics and international programs in that post-war period. 
So with that, I will turn it over to Dan. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Bob Buck and the consortium for organizing this session. It's the first session that has provided us with the opportunity to give basically an, a sweeping overview of the history of the Academy that we are close to completing. As Peter mentioned, I'm responsible for the history from its founding, founding of the NAS, which was on March 4th, 1863. And I mentioned the date because we are just two days short of uh, marking its 160th birthday. When and it was then established by an act of Congress through World War II. But before I get to the substance, let me offer a few words about sources. The Academy's records from its founding in 1863 to World War I are very thin, comprising little more than the minutes of the members' meetings and of the council, plus body files on the reports it produced for the government. To flesh out the history during this period, I explored some 15 manuscript collections held outside the NAS. I would have explored a few more had it not been for the pandemic. These collections contain the correspondence of the Academy's leading figures from its founding through the interwar years. The effort paid abundant dividends in providing a rich trove of material for enlivening and understanding the Academy's history. And it also led, I must emphasize, to revisions, some of them major in what we thought we knew about the Academy. For example, the correspondence revealed that the Academy was born with severe handicaps, more severe than historians have recognized. It was formally intended to advance science and to provide the government with advice whenever called upon. But while its founders had sought federal financial support, they did not achieve that, it did not achieve authorization for any funds other than, as Peter has said, for the reimbursement of its advisory committee's expenses. No less important, it was forged in a very makeshift fashion, literally in the dead of night. I'll be glad to flesh this out in the Q&A. By only four scientists, without any consultation with the larger scientific community. The vast majority of the 50 men, called incorporators, whom the legislation named as the initial members, knew absolutely nothing about it, including the fact that they had been so named. What the Academy would be and do remain to be fleshed out amid ignorance of its existence and purpose on the part of most of the government and of widespread resentments in the scientific community, some of whom considered its creation a coup achieved by a Washington clique. So from the outset, the Academy's character and functions were shaped by the evolving composition of the membership and governance by which I mean who was running the show in the Academy during its successive period, shaped also by the changing national circumstances in which it operated. For example, recognition of the need to conserve natural resources, the onset of the second industrial revolution of laboratory sciences, tensions over immigration and human reproduction, and the demands of war and defense. Let me then first turn to the question of membership and governance. With the aim of getting a hold on the membership and governance, I conducted a survey and statistical analysis, that's the first such assessment, of both in the major periods between 1863 and 1945. The analysis formed a kind of armature of the Academy's development that helped a good deal to understand what it did and didn't do. To summarize the results, 
At its founding, the Academy's membership and governance were dominated by scientists and federal agencies. By 1915, the distribution had changed dramatically, with academics and scientists and nonprofits disproportionately present in both groups. By World War II, the pattern in both groups, members and governors, was pretty much the same, except more so. In terms of disciplines, in 1863, astronomers, physical scientists, geologists, and military engineers dominated the ranks. By 1920, the Academy's authorized size had increased to about 150, and it faced demands for a disciplinary representation that reflected the increasing role in the larger society of engineers, social scientists, and scientifically-minded physicians. The Academy thus added a section for engineering and another for anthropology and psychology and two others for medicine. The total in each discipline was relatively small and the medical sections were short on physicians and clinical research. But the representation of these groups kept growing through the interwar years and into World War II when the Academy's total membership was pushing 250. By then, the medical and social scientists members had come to play an increasingly influential role in the Academy's engagement with the government and the larger society. Let me now take up the overall subject of advising the government. In the Academy's first third of a century to 1900, the disproportionate presence of federal scientists in the membership and governance meant that the Academy enjoyed very strong representation on the ground in Washington which was then a quite small city. Its governors were known or easily made themselves known to members of the cabinet and Congress. They lobbied for advisory requests and were given a number of influential ones. One of them initiated what we have identified as the academies helping to shape the infrastructure of American life. This involved setting standards for the levying of excise taxes on the alcoholic content of spirits a process that led to a statutory definition of alcoholic proof, which you see on the labels of all liquor bottles, that prevailed in the U.S. until the 1980s. Others addressed federal policy for science and national resources. Salient among these were the creation of the U.S. Geological Survey and the sustaining of the Coast and Geodetic Survey, both jewels in the crown of federal science. And it also included the establishment on a permanent basis of the National Forest Reserve System, including in 1897, it's doubling in size to 40 million acres. The manuscript collections of the key players revealed that contrary to prevailing historiography, the forest system owed its functions to a significant extent to the report of the Academy Commission on the issue. At the time, the leadership was so enmeshed with the federal government that some of its members held that the academy was part of the government. But at the same time, they also insisted that it was beyond federal control, a position that cabinet members rejected and that created tension between the academy and the government again and again. In the period between 1900 and 1915, the government hardly called upon the academy for advice at all. Why? For one reason, because federal science was now extensive and the agencies no longer felt any need for advice from the academy. But the absence of requests also arose from the change in the academy's composition. 
With so few members and governors now on the ground in the Capitol, it lacked the proximity to power it once enjoyed. Moreover, the Academy's increasingly academic membership held emphatically that the Academy was not part of the government, and they jealously guarded its insulation from federal control. In keeping with that position, they tended to hold that it should not risk compromising its independence from politics by seeking government tasks. A sharp departure from the view of the membership and governors in the 19th century. Then, too, by this time, an abundance of professional scientific societies had cropped up, to which the federal bureaus could also turn if they felt the impulse to seek outside advice. This gave rise to a sense of threatening competition between the elite academy and the commoners of American science and engineering. Nevertheless, the academy played a significant role in the larger society through entrepreneurship and engagement. That larger topic is what I will now turn to. Lacking a federal appropriation, the academy had no physical space of its own, and through the early 20th century, it relied on private requests from its members and their families to fund scientific research projects. The accumulation of these endowment funds, I might add, uh, as an aside, constituted one of the major sources of such funding for research in the United States at the time. Some of the projects supported by the funds included Albert Michelson's ether drift experiments, and they were, in general, in fact, of high consequence. However, in the early 20th century, the Academy began proactively to seek external private support, both to support research and obtain a building. For both purposes, it took on an entrepreneurial character, turning to wealthy science-oriented industrialists and, more important, to their institutional offspring, the major philanthropic foundations that loomed large in the U.S. from 1900 onward, notably the Carnegie and Rockefeller philanthropies. But before any major support would be provided, the foundations wanted the Academy to show that it was worthy of such support. A major opportunity to do so came with World War I. Amid the national emergency, the Academy's leaders took the position that they could appropriately seek to assist the government so long as they guarded the Academy from political control. They had a double aim, both to serve national defense and to advance the interests of American science, including the Academy's own, amid the diversifying structure of American science and engineering. In 1916, obtaining a request from President Wilson, the Academy established the National Research Council. This was an omnibus entity operating under the Academy's wing. It was carefully designed to be a similarly private agency, independent of the government. It still nevertheless incorporated representatives of federal agencies and a specialized scientific engineering and medical society, thus greatly enlarging its equipage of expertise beyond that possessed by the academy itself. But as a private agency, the NRC, that is the Research Council, had neither governmental authority nor funding to pursue military projects. It had to proceed by persuasion. It did succeed in obtaining seed money from both the military and the Rockefeller and Carnegie philanthropies. But once the project proved promising, it was taken over by the Army or Navy. Still, during the war, the NRC mounted successful efforts across a broad range of military fields, 
including submarine detection, radio communication, chemical warfare, and IQ testing for the placement of draftees. In the spring of 1918, at the initiative of the Academy and with the blessing of the Wilson administration, the NRC was made permanent. From then through the early 1930s, the military, short on funds amid the return to isolationism, sought little assistance from the NAS-NRC. The civilian agencies involved themselves with the Academy to some degree through the NRC, notably amid the country's embrace of the automobile in the development of standards for the design and construction of roads and highways, another influential infrastructural function that continues to this day. But both the Academy's membership and the federal civilian agencies reverted in the main to their pre-war combination of indifference and lack of interest vis-a-vis -vis the provision of advice. During the interwar years, the NAS-NRC cast its lot almost entirely with the private sector. The war had heightened the appreciation of industrial captains to the need for scientific research and training. The NAS-NRC sought in part to advance American industrial advantage, warning that the post-war era would be marked by ferocious high technology economic competition from the central powers. Partly to defend against that threat, the NAS-NRC promoted nationalism over internationalism in science, taking the lead with the French in establishing an international research council that excluded scientists from the central powers until the late 20s. In the 20s, the NAS-NRC sought funds for science from major industrial corporations and individual industrialists, but the effort failed, not least because of market and legal constraints. The NAS-NRC received only modest industrial funding between the wars, mainly from trade associations. However, the NAS-NRC's war work had, had in fact proved its merit to the Rockefeller and Carnegie officers. In the 20s, the Rockefeller Philanthropies gifted the Academy with funds to support a significant program of postdoctoral fellowships in the major scientific disciplines. The Carnegie Corporation granted the Academy $5 million, $75 million in 2023 dollars for an endowment and for the construction of a handsome building of its own in Washington, which was completed and dedicated in 1924. With significant philanthropic support, the NAS-NRC also developed a broad engagement with social and civic issues of science, that is, questions of national importance to the larger society. One major study in the 20s addressed immigration and its effect on American society. The initiative was suffused with the ideas and of eugenics and anti-immigrant racism. It was led by biologists from the academy, anthropologists and psychologists, and included several women. Those attitudes of eugenics, et cetera, were held by a number of the Academy's participants. Another important program concerned sex and human reproduction, including the psychology and psychobiology of sex. By the late 1930s, the program had fostered the development of a score or more centers for research in the field. It would be joined in the 1940s by Alfred Kinsey, whose work led in the, after the war to the famed eponymous reports on human sexual behavior. Finally, for my last topic, 
let me discuss very briefly the Great Depression War and the revival of the government connection. In the face of the national economic emergency of the Great Depression, the NASNRC sought advisory tests from the government in the interests of both science and national economic recovery. The overarching vehicle for the purpose was a science advisory board, which President Franklin Roosevelt established within the academy in 1933. And by making uh, the appointments, and since the appointments were made by the president in the academy, some members of the academy, including its president, were extremely upset because this, in their view, constituted political interference with the academy's operations. In the end, not much came of the Boer's efforts in the domestic area, that is, for economic recovery. But the Boer's military subcommittees grew increasingly active as the threats to American security mounted in the late 1930s. One of these efforts, which after a few years the Academy voluntarily relinquished to the Army Air Corps, generated a rocket project at Caltech that eventually yielded jet-assisted takeoff and the establishment of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. The divestiture of the rocket project expressed the fact that early in the war, the Academy considered itself administratively and financially unequipped to take on the management of a large war research project. However, the engagement with military and civilian problems paid an important dividend, that is the engagement in the 30s. In the course of serving on the essay on the Science Advisory Board's committees, a number of the younger Academy members had acquired a knowledge of the federal agencies, including their operations and needs that they had not, except for the experience of some of them in the mobilization of World War I, previously possessed. In this sense, they replicated the experience of the Academy's members who were on the ground in the late 19th century. These younger members also came to recognize from this experience the value of operating under the authority of the President of the United States. Mindful that the NASNRC possessed neither federal funds nor authority, in 1940, a small group of these scientists obtained Roosevelt's approval to establish a National Defense Research Committee, that is the NDRC, an independent executive agency in the government with its own budget. When a year later, Roosevelt enlarged the scope of the NDRC by establishing the Office of Scientific Research and Development, that is OSRD, the most important scientific agency of the war, the leaders of the new agency appointed the NASNRC's Medical Committee as OSRD's Medical Committee. With OSRD funds, the NASNRC's Medical Committee let numerous contracts in medical research, such as for blood substitutes. OSRD allowed the Academy to pay administrative costs by charging overhead on the contracts it let, and Congress regularized the practice by incorporating it legislatively in a revision of the Academy's charter in, I think, 1944. Buoyed by the value of its wartime contributions and now of the technical challenges in the looming Cold War, the Academy abandoned the policy that the NAS could properly act only when called upon by the government and now assured that it would not go bankrupt by taking on large projects for the government, it emerged from the war as something of a hybrid in public life, embracing an entrepreneurial approach to the government as it had previously with the philanthropies while maintaining its insistence on freedom from federal control. 
And that was where the Academy landed in 1945. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Dan. So after World War II, Ruth and I pick up the Academy's story. The American science community coming out of World War II was much changed from 1863. It was now a world leader instead of a backwater. It had a much greater presence in American society, and it was integrated into many parts of the federal government. The Academy evolved with the circumstances, and after the war, the Academy and the NRC grew tremendously in size and power. But that growth increased inherent tensions in several aspects. And I'll now give a brief survey of some of those tensions through changing views of the three terms in the National Academy's name, National, Academy, and Sciences. So what's in a name? Let's start briefly with sciences. How did the Academy define the term? The Congressional Charter of 1863 directed the Academy to advise the government, quote, on any subject of science or art, which gave it a lot of latitude. In practice, the Academy interpreted this narrowly, reinforced by the tendency of members to elect like-minded colleagues. So the Academy did not, for instance, follow the lead of science academies in other countries and stoop so low as to elect historians, except for a brief lapse of judgment in the 1970s. It did, however, undergo disciplinary broadening over time. For starters, the Academy had long grappled with the relation between science and engineering. President Kennedy reminded the Academy at its centennial celebration that Tocqueville had a chapter titled Why the Americans Are More Addicted to Practical Than to Theoretical Science. And at that very moment, the engineers, aware of their key roles in the atomic age and space race, were protesting their limited presence in the Academy and agitating for an independent Academy of Engineering. Scientists resisted on several grounds, for starters, where to draw the boundary between science and engineering, and a separate academy would also lead to fragmentation rather than unity, and also, not incidentally, would compete both for policy attention and for funding. So a long story here, but the end result was an academy of engineering, well, also a fear that the academy of engineering might lead to similar calls for separate academies for medicine, agriculture, and so on. So accelerating the fragmentation. So again, long story, the engineers ended up creating a National Academy of Engineering in 1964, but under the Academy of Sciences charter and integrated with the NRC. And sure enough, physicians doing clinical research, similarly limited in the Academy membership and similarly spurred by growing social influence, in this case, the 1960s emphasis on healthcare policy, soon pushed for and got an Institute of Medicine, albeit also overseen by the Academy. With both the NAE and the IOM, the National Academy of Sciences insisted on being first among equals, which ensured that squabbling with the engineers and the physicians would continue until the three institutions finally resolved their differences by merging into the single National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine in 2016. The 1960s context also led to calls for greater representation of social science as the growth of the regulatory state and the environmental movement drove increasing demand for social science expertise for policy advice. Although the Academy approved an expanded presence of social and behavioral sciences in both the Academy and the NRC, some Academy members in the natural sciences continued to view the social sciences as soft and unworthy of inclusion. For example, a report in the 1980s titled A Common Destiny, which was studying the effect of civil rights legislation on the economic, social, and political status of Black people in the U.S., 
drew criticism from natural scientists in the academy for its reliance on social scientists, whose conclusions the critics charged were, quote, based on value judgments and political views. The academy president, who was Frank Press at the time, arranged for a debate between the critics and the social scientists, which the social scientists won in a rout. On to our next term, academy. What should an academy do? The National Academy's founders intended it not only to advise the government, but also to promote American science. Uh, this started with the honorary function to recognize scientists for outstanding research. Uh, the post-war academy expanded its membership to try to keep pace with the tremendous growth of the American science community, though it grappled with new questions. In an academy organized by disciplines, how to recognize and elect interdisciplinary scientists. Some post-war scientists were becoming known more for their administrative talent than their research, for instance, by running national labs. Should they be elected as members? Thus, Norris Bradbury, director of Los Alamos, made it in. What about the emerging category of scientists who specialize in public outreach? Should they be elected? In the case of Carl Sagan, the answer was no. The Academy also more directly elevated American science in several ways. One was by organizing conferences, such as the Shelter Island Conference for Theoretical Physics in 1947, which Oppenheimer called the best meeting he ever attended, or the Asilomore Conference of 1975 on recombinant DNA, whose guidelines have shaped genomics research ever since. The Academy also published research, in particular, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS, first published in 1915, and soon one of the most cited scientific journals. The PNS published many seminal articles, Edwin Hubble on the expanding universe, Barbara McClintock on maize chromosomes, Matthew Meselson and Franklin Stahl on DNA replication, John Nash on game theory, to name just a few. The Academy also encouraged the production of new scientists, most notably by overseeing large fellowship programs for grad students and postdocs. Post-war NRC fellows included such future luminaries as Murray Gell-Mann, Richard Garwin, John Nash, again, and Daniel Koshland. James Watson was on an NRC fellowship when he and Crick discovered the double helix. More recently, the Academy has expanded into K-12 education, as Ruth will discuss, and it has sought to promote science through public outreach, uh, thus an office in LA to boost science in Hollywood films and TV programs, the production of educational pamphlets and videos, and a hands-on science museum in an academy building. Another continued academy function was to represent the U.S. in the international scientific community. Thus, the academy organized international research projects, most notably the International Geophysical Year. The Cold War also encouraged the academy to undertake scientific exchange programs with the Soviet Union and China as a way to bridge ideological divisions. Amid the post-colonial movement, the academy promoted science in the developing world, starting in the 1960s, and in the 1990s, it catalyzed the creation of the Inter-Academy Council and Inter-Academy Panel, conceived as a sort of NAS and NRC to provide scientific advice on a transnational scale, transnational and global scale. And then there was the other primary function, to advise the government. The growth and scale and scope of the federal government after the war, driven especially by national security and the regulatory state, greatly expanded the opportunities, but also challenges for the post-war academy. The NRC realized its latent potential for scientific advice, but that realization caused tension between the NRC and the academy. 
Academy members worried that the NRC tail was now wagging the Academy's dog. They looked down on NRC staff and committee members as a lower intellectual class. One Academy member complained that NRC committees were populated by dinglings, that's his word, who sullied the Academy's reputation. NRC staff and committees, for their part, resented the disrespect as well as Academy oversight. They were well aware that they provided most of the Academy's policy influence and also funding, and that well over 90% of NRC committee members were not Academy scientists. And that brings us finally to national. What did it mean to be a national academy? In one sense, national might mean that it represents or reflects the American people. For its early history, the academy consisted only of white men. It elected its first female member in 1924. By 1960, it had three women out of 600 total members. At that time, it also had zero black members. The academy did not elect its first black scientist until 1965. As American society at large expanded the opportunities for women and minorities, so has the academy, although for women and members of minority groups, the proportion still appears to lag behind their presence in the ranks of senior research scientists. The academy also worried about the age of its members. As the baby boom swelled the ranks of American science with young PhDs, academy leaders worried that they were losing touch with the younger generation. In the 1960s, the median member's age was 62. This at a time when hippies didn't trust anyone over 30. The need to elect younger members has been a perennial issue ever since. Finally, in the Federalist American system, the Academy had to pay attention to geographic representation, balanced with its meritocratic desire to represent the elite of American science. The result was a membership disproportionately drawn from a handful of schools in the Northeast, Upper Midwest, and West Coast. The Academy, in short, was an unabashedly elitist body in a democratic society. When a former government lawyer called for public access to Academy deliberations in the 1970s, Academy President Philip Handler responded, quote, we choose the members of our committees with extreme care. We have no sense of participatory democracy. This is an elitist organization, sir, unquote. On an equally fundamental level, a national academy should serve national interests. This, first of all, required the Academy's international programs to balance the ideals of scientific internationalism against the realities of science's contributions to national, military, and economic power. The difficulty of maintaining this particular balance was evident, uh, for example, in the U.S.-Soviet exchanges and also in the IGY. It also required balancing the desire for scientific cooperation against the imperative to uphold American values, namely human rights. The persecution of Soviet dissidents in the 1970s and the massacre of Chinese citizens on Tiananmen Square in 1989, compelled the Academy to suspend the respective exchanges, uh, albeit with much soul-searching. Closer to home, the Academy's advice to the federal government introduced more tensions. As a private, autonomous institution with a congressional charter, the Academy walked a tenuous line between private and public body. In some cases, this ambiguity gave it room to maneuver, for example, by opening exchanges with China in the 70s before the U.S. government had established formal relations, or by providing an unofficial back channel to the Soviets on arms control in the 1980s. At other times, however, this ambiguity rose up to bite the Academy. A prime example was the Federal Advisory Committee Act of 1972, or FACA, 
which sought to ensure transparency and accountability in advice affecting public policy with the proliferation of advisory committees, including scientific advisory committees. The Academy for decades had insisted that it was a public agency in order, of course, to avoid taxes. And with the passage of FACA, the Academy changed its tune, now insisting that it was private in order to avoid opening its committee deliberations to the public. This worked for a while until the Supreme Court in the early 90s ruled that FACA in fact applied to the Academy. This posed an existential threat in the eyes of Academy leaders. To open up committee deliberations to public scrutiny and thus political pressure would destroy the objective independence that was the Academy's very value to the government. Congress eventually stepped in with an exemption, although the institutional ambiguity persisted. The Academy's advice to the government on pressing policy issues also exposed it to the buffeting winds of democratic politics. In the 60s, for example, American society increasingly challenged all sorts of scientific authority, all, all sorts of authority in general, and especially scientific authority. Academy studies of pesticides, food additives, and other contentious topics aroused critics to assail the Academy as a virtual puppet of government, quote, and a tool of vested interests, another quote. These charges were not just made by outside critics. A few Academy members resigned amid tumultuous meetings to protest the Academy's advice to the military during the Vietnam War. The most prominent was biologist Richard Lawton, who asked, is the Academy really just another RAND corporation? Such debates raised a basic, uh, basic question. What should the Academy's leaders and members do when they disagreed with the policies of the government they were directed to serve? Subsequent examples included the teaching of creationism in public schools, the initial lack of federal policy during the AIDS epidemic, and climate change. What does a national academy do in such situations? Should it stand on principle and refuse to serve the government, thereby violating its charter? Or should it compromise ideals and work within the system? Put it another way, should the academy exercise moral and political as well as technical judgment? Could one even separate technical issues from moral and political considerations? Philip Handler, the Academy's president during the Vietnam controversy, maintained that since the Academy was neither a private corporate body nor an agency of government, we are free to be both servant and critic of government. And he argued emphatically that the Academy indeed had moral responsibilities, in his words. Subsequent Academy presidents and members would continue to ponder the precarious balance between neutral expertise and political engagement. The Academy did not resolve all these tensions, but its members and leaders and the federal government, American scientists, and the American people have managed to navigate them. The end result over time was an institution bigger not only in scale, but also in influence. It is, of course, often a challenge to judge whether a particular Academy study shifted the vector of public policy, or to change the metaphor, to calculate the Academy's batting average on its policy studies. Bro for consensus could settle for the lowest common denominator rather than court controversy, and academy reports calling for more research became something of a running joke. And on some issues, the academy was silent. Sometimes the government did not ask it for advice, such as on the H-bomb or SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, and the academy sometimes didn't pursue private funding for policy studies for fear of antagonizing the government. The Academy is an all-too-human institution, and our history will pay due attention to its failings. But we also discovered how the Academy learned to exercise influence in often unseen ways. And Ruth will now give us some examples. Thank you, Peter.
1993, as part of its study of not-for-profit organizations that provide scientific and technical advice to the federal government, a Carnegie Commission concluded that the NAS NRC complex was, and I'm quoting now, the most powerful single national asset outside government in formulating science and technology policy. If it did not exist, as the commission went on, something close to it would have had to be invented. As a result of our research, Peter and I have concluded that the Carnegie Commission was 100% correct in that judgment. Although neither of us understood that when we began our research, Part of the reason for our ignorance, we now know, is that the kind of power that the Academy exerts is almost invisible. My talk today will explore a few Academy NRC studies in depth in order to make that invisible power visible. My first example is the drug efficacy study, abbreviated as DES, which began in 1966 and ended in 1969. It was the result of the thalidomide scandal, which became obvious in 1962, at which point Congress passed an amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, known formally as the Drug Efficacy Act. The 1962 legislation contained a stipulation that pharmaceutical manufacturers had to demonstrate not just the safety of their drugs, which they had been required to do since 1938, but also their efficacy, which they had not been required previously to demonstrate. Henceforth, pharmaceutical companies were going to have to demonstrate that their drugs actually worked. And they were going to have to do that both for new drugs and retroactively for each one of the almost 4,000 prescription drugs that were already on the American market. In 1962, however, the perpetually underfunded and understaffed FDA could barely keep pace with new drug applications, let alone re-examine all the drugs it had already approved. The agency, in addition, had a well-deserved reputation for being in the pocket of the drug companies, and it dragged its feet until 1966. After Congress complained, a new FDA commissioner, James Goddard, decided to ask the NRC's Drug Research Board to undertake the re-examination. The Academy, Goddard said, could muster, and now I'm quoting, the top medical and other scientific talent of the nation, whose judgments would be more acceptable to the drug industry, to physicians, and to the public than those of a government agency. I'm going to repeat that last phrase more acceptable to the drug industry, physicians, and the public, because I'm going to come back to it in a few minutes. Some NAS council members were reluctant to take on this task, partly because it would be too big to manage, they thought, and partly because they were aware that many academic pharmacologists consulted for industry and would therefore have conflicts of interest. Nonetheless, the council put aside its fears, and in June 1966, it agreed to undertake the retroactive study for the FDA. 30 expert panels were created in 22 therapeutic categories. Each panel had a chairman and five members, some of whom were drawn from industry, most of whom were medical school faculty. At the end of the study, NRC managers estimated that added together, 
there had been 10,000 hours of uncompensated panel meetings. And this figure didn't even count the also uncompensated time that panel members spent studying all the materials that they had to prepare for each meeting. Two NRC program staff and 12 secretaries managed the tedious scheduling of panel meetings and the voluminous paperwork. The FDA had received a total of 2,824 reports from 237 manufacturers covering 3,700 drug formulations. The staff cataloged all of these and distributed them to the panelists. The study was completed in its allotted two years, something that didn't often happen with academy studies. The panels gave each formulation a rating, either A for effective, B for probably effective, C for possibly effective, and D for ineffective. Roughly 200 drugs, that is about 10% of the total, were deemed ineffective and were eventually taken off the market. That result in itself was quite remarkable, but it is not nearly as remarkable as the long-term effects of the DES. One important long-term effect was judicial. When the results of the study were released, several drug manufacturers, not surprisingly, sued the FDA. The FDA prevailed in every single one of those suits including those that were bumped all the way to the Supreme Court. The courts ruled that under the Constitution, Congress did have the ability to interfere with what had long been considered the prerogatives both of private industry and of the medical profession, thereby creating the legal foundation for what has come to be called the American regulatory state. Historians of drug regulation have identified two more important long-term effects of the DES. Not long after the conclusion of the study, the FDA, impressed by the NAS's management of its complicated task, began setting up its own unpaid extramural advisory panels to help evaluate new drug applications. Practice, which, as I'm sure you know, continues to this day. In addition, the final DAS report recommended, and the FDA agreed, that going forward, the gold standard test for efficacy should be randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials, another regulatory practice which continues to this day. In 1966, at the beginning of the DES, when a reporter from Science Magazine asked Commissioner Goddard why he had turned to the Academy to do the DES, despite the fact that employees of pharmaceutical companies sat on its drug research board, he replied, if you can't trust the National Academy of Sciences, who can you trust? Both of Goddard's remarks to reporters, the one I read earlier and this one, are about trust, which is the key to understanding the invisible power of the Academy NRC complex. The Academy NRC cannot make regulatory decision, but it can and does provide advice to regulatory agencies that are politically useful for those agencies solely because the Academy NRC is trusted by politically powerful actors legislators, judges, corporate leaders, lawyers, physicians, university presidents, even voters, or used to be voters. After an academy recommendation is accepted by these political actors, it becomes part of the fabric of American life because those powerful actors have invisibly woven it into one or another of our many social infrastructures. And in the end, those actors get the credit for the skillful weaving, not the academy. 
My second set of examples comes from the Academy's effort in the 1990s to create an entirely new science of education, one that would be based not on behavioral psychology, but on cognitive psychology and the neurosciences. This effort formally began in 1993, and it has, in a very important sense, never concluded. The start date of 1993 is significant. In January 1993, Bill Clinton was inaugurated. Within days after his inauguration, Congress approved his choice of Richard Riley as his Secretary of Education. Both Clinton and Riley had been governors of Southern states who had succeeded in reforming K-12 education in their states and now were committed to doing the same thing on a national level. Three months after Bill Clinton's inauguration, at the end of April of 1993, Bruce Alberts, a molecular biologist, was elected president of the NAS. Alberts had told the Presidential Nominating Committee that if he was elected, he would make reforming K-12 education his first priority something the Academy had never before attended to. Alberts made good on that promise almost immediately. So between them, Riley and Alberts might well be considered the godfathers of that new science of education because the DOE funded almost every reform effort that Alberts initiated. The Academy's efforts to create that new science had three prongs, and I only have time today to discuss two of them. One prong was intended to use, and I'm quoting now, neuroscience, neuropsychology, and cognitive science to understand the difficulties that children can have in acquiring literacy skills. The other prong explored, I'm quoting again, what the behavioral sciences know about how children learn and how this information can be used to promote learning. The study committees that carried out these two projects were remarkable in the range of their members' expertise. Cognitive psychologists, K-12 school administrators, sociolinguists, leaders of organizations representing parents and teachers, experts in curriculum development, pediatricians, neuroscientists, special ed and reading teachers, all sat on these panels. Both projects resulted in the publication of reports. The first one was Preventing Reading Difficulties in Young Children. It was published in 1998. The committee's charge was to end the reading wars, which had pitted the phonics approach to reading instruction against the whole language approach. The second report, entitled How People Learn, was published in three different editions with three different subtitles in 1999 and the year 2000. It was an effort to survey the recent research in cognitive science and neuroscience and educational psychology in order to improve pedagogy. Preventing reading difficulties declared what it called a Pax Lectura, a peaceful resolution of the battle between phonics and whole world pedagogy. It declared that excellent reading instruction combined both techniques. Whole language should be used for preschool and kindergarten children because it suited their developmental capacities. Phonics was best in the first through the third grades. The report also asserted that reading readiness should begin in infancy. How people learn tried to imagine how new findings in the cognitive and neurosciences could be applied to pedagogy and to sketch out a research agenda that would explore those possible applications. Both reports are on the old time bestseller list of the National Academies Press. Between them, almost 200,000 paper copies have been sold and digital copies have been accessed several million times. 
Preventing reading difficulties was rewritten so as to be accessible to parents and early childhood educators in a volume called Darting Out Right, a guide to promoting children's reading success, and it appeared on the shelves of retail bookstores. By 2020, 142,000 print copies had been sold. A shortened edition of How People Learn bore the subtitle Bridging Research and Practice. The Department of Education distributed that version of How People Learn without charge at conferences of educators and sent it in bulk to school districts on request. The short-term impact of preventing reading difficulties was astonishing. Shortly before the report was published, this timing was not a coincidence, the Clinton administration put two pieces of education-related legislation before Congress. One, to reauthorize Head Start, the pre-K program for disadvantaged children. The other, called the Reading Excellence Act, was to create a competitive grant program at the DOED that would encourage states and school districts to create reading improvement programs. The language of both bills betrayed the study's influence. Committee members testified before the relevant congressional committees and congressional staffers had read the report. Congress passed both bills and they were signed into law by Bill Clinton in October of 1998. The George W. Bush administration, which followed the Clinton administration, incorporated the provisions of the Reading Excellence Act into its No Child Left Behind Act in 2001, renaming it as the Reading First Program. It was one of the provisions of the No Child Left Behind Act that were left in place when the act itself was repealed in 2015. The short-term impact of how people learn was the creation of a unique research institute, the Strategic Education Research Partnership, or SERP, in which school districts could collaborate with education scientists to, as the subtitle of the short edition put it, quote, bridge the gap between research and practice. Serpenting around 2001 as part of the NRC, but two years later, it was spun off as an independent not-for-profit corporation with funding from several foundations and with Bruce Alberts as its board chair. By 2009, SERP had its first research practitioner project underway on middle school literacy in partnership with Boston's public schools. By 2020, 11 years later, it had several dozen staff members in two offices, one on each coast, and it had completed 10 major research projects involving dozens of researchers from 35 different academic institutions and 1,400 teachers from 30 different school districts. It had also made the resulting instructional tools available for free to more than 40,000 teachers and administrators from every state in the union, as well as several other countries. SERP is still flourishing. It started as a short-term impact of an academy report, and it is now part of its long-term impact. How People Learn has another long-term impact. It is being used in whole or in part as a textbook in graduate schools of education, which has made its conclusions part of the skill set of three generations of classroom teachers in the United States and in several other countries. Thus, in this second and third of my examples, in its various efforts to create a new applied and sometimes experimental science of education, the Academy once again exerted its power invisibly, this time through members of Congress, through the faculty of graduate schools of education, through educational materials produced by businesses, one of them a not-for-profit of its own creation, 
by invisibly weaving the Academy's recommendations into the social infrastructure of education. These powerful actors have altered the everyday school experience of millions of children. And once again, they get the credit, not the Academy. Our effort, Peter and Dan's and mine, as historians of science, engineering, technology, and medicine, who know how to locate primary, crucial primary sources and to read between the lines of published sources has been in the authorship of this book to make the invisible visible and thereby to give credit where credit is due. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. And Peter and Dan, thank you very much. We're going to take your questions. I believe that Ruth wanted to say a few words about the National Academy's archives and their press. Ruth, did you want to talk about these? Yes, thank you, Baba. The archives of the National Academy of Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the National Academy of Medicine, and the National Research Council are an exceptionally rich resource for historians interested in many aspects of the sciences, technology, engineering, or medicine. Like all institutions that maintain archives, however, the National Academies restrict access to theirs. Records more than 25 years old are generally open to researchers. Certain categories of privileged records are accepted, such as fraternal papers, fellowship materials, case files, personnel files, report review files, confidential deliberative information, and proprietary information. Some of those restrictions were lifted for us, which is what we mean when we say that we had unprecedented access. But some were not, and some were lifted, but only under special conditions. You can find information about the Academy's policies, and you can make inquiries about access to its records by going to the website of the archives itself, NASEM archives at nas.edu. You can also find a great deal of information and free downloadable copies of most of the Academy's post-war published reports. And you can find those on the website of the National Academy's Press, which is www.nap.edu. Thank you, Ruth. So we have some questions for you. One is by Jim Fleming. He asks, does your study compare NAS NRC with other institutions of science policy advice that may be more open to including humanistic perspectives? For example, the Office of Technology Assessment, CRS, and the multiplicity of think tanks. I asked based on my firsthand experience in BC as a fellow at the Wilson Center and as a lone historically trained panelist on two NRC studies. The NRC panels are very heavily tilted toward technical issues, and there seems to be a need for historians to participate in ongoing NAS NRC programs. Are there such opportunities? By and large, we don't compare the academy complex to other policymaking not-for-profits. And did you want to add something? Yeah, I, yeah, I would add that in my period, when in, in discussing accounting for the origins of the NAS, the founders had very much in mind the uh, Royal Society, but especially the French Academy of Sciences. So I do provide some a gesture towards the main features of those two institutions that figured in the the strategy of, of the founders of the NAS. But beyond that, no. I, I would point out that it's more than we can accomplish to deal with the vast range of activities of the NAS and RC themselves, let alone to add on comparisons with other institutions. It's a worthy project, to be sure, but 
uh, we are providing, I guess you might say, the essential foundation for others then to proceed to do that. Let me just qualify that, though, by saying that we don't venture explicit comparisons between the academy and how the academy differed or resembled OTA or OSTP or nonprofit advisor groups like RAND or the Jasons, but we certainly situate it in the context of that advisory landscape. And we look at, for example, in the post-war period, how the academy's advice to the federal government, the military, but not just military, was provided both opportunities, but also constraints by the proliferation of these other advisory groups, whether it's the advisory groups for the military services, the Weapons System Evaluation Group, the RDB, the Jasons, RAND, and so on, eventually the development of PSAC, then the OTA for Congress, and how these are both kind of competitors uh, in the advisory landscape, but also oftentimes collaborators. So for instance, the creation of PSAC would seem to create a competition and cut into the Academy's advisory influence, and similarly with OTA for Congress. Um, but what both of those bodies, in fact, did was to stimulate opportunities because the people on PSAC, many of whom were Academy members, similarly, OTA was very familiar with uh, the Academy, would then feed policy questions for the Academy to study. So we, we certainly try to account for those other advisory channels as part of the context, the kind of ecosystem for policy advice. Although we're not trying to explicitly compare how the Academy functions to how PSAC functions to how the OTA functions and their maybe relative, well, their relative attributes, I guess. Thank you. Shuo Yu Wang, thanks you for a wonderful and stimulating panel. And ask a question for Peter. Can you say a bit more on the roles of the National Academy of Science in regard to climate change research and policy in the U.S. and international? So the Academy has had, it's kind of, this is a mixed bag. The Academy has engaged the issue of climate change going back to the 1950s with several committees on meteorology, on atmospheric sciences, and first started raising the issue of climate change all the way back then, 1960s, continued and then the 1970s with some particularly kind of milestone studies, the study under Jewel Charney. Uh, Roger Revelle was very much involved in some of these early things going back to the 60s. So there's this long record of Academy engagement with the issue up through subsequent studies in the 80s, 90s. But so a, a few issues here. One is, you know, you could say that this long record of you know, engagement on the issue suggests with little to show for it in the federal government, you know, embracing the need to address climate change. Uh, the federal government's lack of action would suggest, you know, a lack of influence. So that's one possible response. You know, the Jewel Charney study back in the 1970s, you know, was spot on in many of its predictions. The federal government uh, refused to or declined to respond to its recommendations. So you could view that as a record of failure in a sense, but there's another way to look at it. You know, going back to, you know, Roger Revelle, you know, his famous theory was, you know, research and then policy and then action. And the Academy has its efforts have stimulated a this accumulating body of research over the decades, which finally did acquire some, I guess, momentum towards uh, doing something about it. So there's, you could view it both ways, both as a record of, lack of influence over policy, the academy kind of striking out if you want to pursue that batting average metaphor, or the academy, you know, gradually playing small ball, I guess, and uh, building up stuff over time. But there's another source of influence here, which I would like to point out, which is, I guess, another sort of the kind of invisible power that Ruth was talking about. 
And one crucial way that the academy wields influence is not necessarily through the published reports, which then land on policymakers at desks in the executive branch or in Congress or in the nonprofit sector and so on. But the academy, these studies also are, have a crucial function in educating the scientific community and the broader academic scholarly community on particular topics. So you come, you join one of these NRC committees and a physicist is now sitting around a table with atmospheric chemists and earth scientists and biologists or whatever. And in the case of these education panels, you've got these people around a table now, you've got the natural scientists with the social scientists, with the education scientists, with K through 12 teachers, with big city mayors, and they all learn about the concerns of this group that they wouldn't probably not otherwise have been exposed to. And then the people who serve on these committees, they go back to their university campuses or their corporate offices, and they kind of, they pollinate a broader community with the knowledge that they gain through serving on these committees. So these committees, there's a, they're kind of an important conduit for spreading information and knowledge about particular policy issues through a much broader community. You think about these several thousand people, 6,000 people, upwards of 6,000 people who serve on NRC committees any year, and they all go out and spread what they have learned on these policy topics through a much broader community and propagate it. And I think that's a often underrecognized avenue or a way that the academy exercises influence. We have two related questions asking you to compare your work to earlier works. Emma Jablonski asks you to compare your work with that of 800 degrees science in the federal government. And how does your book compare to that? And Bruce Alperts asks about an earlier effort to produce a book on the history of the academy and asks you to compare your work to that as well. Well, let me take that up briefly. Hunter's work was essential for anybody interested in the history of science in the federal government, and it remains a standard today. However, it was, it is a broad survey of the subject, and necessarily it had to be based on largely published sources, the reports of committee of uh, agencies uh, and so on with some attention to manuscripts. Hunter did also publish an excellent groundbreaking article on the founding of the Academy. I think that the examination of the manuscript resources in the Academy have cast a lot more light on its history, as I said said at the beginning, than Hunter was able to gather, not by any fault of his own, but because those, I mean, one can only do what one can in one lifetime. And his subject was not the academy, it was the broad subject of science in the federal government. So our account of the founding of the academy is, is sharply different from Hunter's in ways that I won't take time to tell you here unless you really want to know. With regard to the earlier history of the Academy, uh, the most important is Rex Cochran's Centennial History, which was published about 1972 or so. And again, he used the records of the Academy, but as I said, the records of the Academy really are very thin before World War I. Also, his, his way of organizing the history, he asked much different questions from us. It's organized by presidential term. It deals with sort of, uh, you know, all committees. There's very little attention to the role of the Academy's influence. Uh, I mean, the Academy's influence in American life, which is a central part of our work. And uh, you won't find anything 
uh, in it on, say, the two subjects that Ruth so lucidly discussed. So that, that's just a brief comparison of the two. It's a very right. useful work. And we, uh, we have used it. I used it. Uh, but uh, I think we have gone far beyond that. I'd like to add something to what Dan just said about Cochrane's book. It's basically an institutional history. You know, this president followed that president. This committee was set up and chaired by so and so. Was set up in in what year and, and chaired by so and so and did the following. What we have tried to write is a contextual institutional history, placing the academy from 1863 to 2013 in the political context of its time and trying to demonstrate how the politics of the time affected the academy and how the academy affected the cultural life of the country at the same time. If I could add one one caveat here or or enlargement, and the context is, at least for, for my part of it, not just political, it's also social and economic as well as cultural. Right. And I would add, I guess, one thing, well, two things. I mean, one thing, one of our guiding kind of philosophies from the outset was kind of trying to write the history from the outside in, which I think is it's basically implicit in what Ruth was talking about, the kind of contextual history, instead of, you know, building it from the inside out. But the other thing, the other advantage, well, first of all, Cochrane's history only goes up through 1963. And, you know, the Academy, the last 50 years, the Academy has grown tremendously in size and influence. But also in the last 50 years, the field of history of science, technology, and medicine has also grown tremendously. And there is a now a very large and rich literature of, of scholarly work that we can draw on to inform the history of the academy that, that Cochrane just did not have advantage of. Well, can I just say one more thing? Following on what Peter just said, we all send our thanks to those of you in the audience who have created the secondary literature and the histories that we've been trying to explore because I, for one, could not have possibly written uh, a history of the recombinant DNA events, controversies, resolutions without the vast secondary literature that already existed. It just couldn't, I couldn't have, couldn't have done it. Yeah, similarly for me, when I have my reference to PSAC earlier, when I'm talking about the Academy's uh, relationship with PSAC, that Zoyu, uh, who's on the, <laughs> on the webinar, Asked the earlier question about climate, you know, Zoya, I'm drawing heavily on his work and I'm drawing on the work looking at the list of participants of a lot of people in our participants today. Get over for me. Helen Roswadowski thanks you for undertaking this project and for this opportunity to learn more about it. She asks, you've collectively emphasized trust in the NAS for much of its history. Can you unpack whether that reflected societal trust in science more broadly or something more particular about the academy? Did the Academy do things to seek trust in itself or trust in science? I'm especially interested in the 1920s and 30s and the post-World War II decades. Well, to take up the 20s and 30s, the Academy benefited from, there, there was enormous trust and enthusiasm for science and technology in the 20s. Some humanists dissented from that, uh, the prevailing authority of science and technology at the time. But because of the association, of, part, partly because of the association of science and technology with the war, but what overpowered that in the 20s was the enormous prosperity of the era for large numbers of Americans, not all to be sure, and the advent of the marvelous new technologies. There was a, uh, you know, a fundamental transformation of American life from the 1870s to the end of the 1920s as a result of new technologies. 
all of them, I'm sure everybody in the audience can just tick them off right away. Radio, airplanes, phonographs, on and on. So that carried over to trust in the academy. And the academy was able to achieve quite a bit, as, for example, in the enormous amount of resources it gained from the philanthropic foundations for the support of those postdoctoral fellowships for the building, et cetera, et cetera, which, as every historian of science in America knows, worked an enormously positive effect on the value, on the quality of American science. Going to the 30s, there was uh, certainly early in the decade a revolt against science and technology because the depression was attributed to the impersonality of science and technology, the displacement of labor by machines, et cetera, et cetera. So the academy had to uh, work against that. It tended, on the whole, to hew to a more conservative, but not a hard right conservative line. And one of the reasons that the academy did not prevail in its domestic proposals for dealing with economic recovery during the, on the part of the Science Advisory Board was because basically it was a trickle-down approach, uh, a meritorious approach, but nevertheless trickle-down, invest in science and technology, and you'll get new industry, new jobs, and recovery. And Harry Hopkins, uh, Roosevelt's right-hand guy, said people eat in the short run. They don't eat in the long term, and we want to know what you're going to do for now. So it was a mixed bag between the 20s and 30s, a mixed bag from the consequences and attitudes of science and technology, a mixed bag concerning trust, and the uh, the mixture affected the attitudes towards the academy and its advisory goals as well. Although the academy did very well in other areas such as soil conservation, et cetera, which were resonant with concerns in the 30s. I would I'll just say briefly that so with respect to the tr uh, trust in the academy itself, it did develop some institutional mechanisms to encourage public trust, especially coming out of these challenges from the 60s to scientific authority and to scientific advisory bodies. So for instance, charges of conflict of interest, these beliefs that, you know, some of these committee members are just in the pockets of corporate industry or in the pockets of the U.S. military. So the Academy developed mechanisms to screen committee members for potential conflicts of interest or bias. So uh, committee members had to submit conflict and potential conflict of interest statements, these kinds of things which emerged coming out of this 60s and the 70s, these challenges to advisory committees. So institutional mechanisms to ensure trust. I could add from a different approach um, that there have certainly been times in the post-war period in which the public writ large had ceased to trust the sciences. They had ceased to trust technology. They've even ceased to trust scientific medicine. But even during those periods of time, and in some of those periods of time, there were executive branch leaders who also no longer trusted or weren't interested in hearing from the communities of science, technology, and medicine, and engineering. But even during those periods, there was always somebody else in the executive branch, in some agency, who desperately needed the help of the academy. And I can, I can cite... For one example, uh, during the period of time that the Reagan administration was trying to ignore the AIDS epidemic, there were people in, I think it was then called the Department of Health and Human Services, who were desperate to have the academy create a policy that Congress could fund so that the agencies could actually act and that's exactly what the academy did. It, it created a committee 
without government funding, if my re recollection serves, they paid for the committee's expenses themselves. The committee created a document uh, which is published under the name Confronting AIDS. As soon as it was out, Congress began allocating money to exactly the agencies that Confronting AIDS had recommended do what kind of work. Thank you. Casey Gibson thanks you for your talk and your work and writes the following. I am a new staff member at the academies, and this talk helped me understand the historical context of the academies in a much deeper way. Thank you for presenting both the valuable contributions while also highlighting problematic actions. I was unaware of the NAS's past contributions towards the eugenics movement, and am curious if there has ever been an official acknowledgement, reckoning, apology, et cetera, put out by the academy. Oh, if I gave the impression that the academy was deeply involved in the eugenics movement, that's a misimpression. Members of the academy were involved in it, including Don Merriam and others. And the uh, the studies on immigration were suffused, well, I mean, with, with the attitudes of eugenics and anti-immigrant racism, as I've said. The IQ test results from the war, they were administered to 1.7 million recruits were analyzed by uh, NASNRC studies and helped fuel the claims, which were wrongheaded, that say immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe were not as intelligent as native whites, and that African-Americans were on the whole much less intelligent than everybody else. So to that degree, yes, the Academy helped bolster the eugenics movement uh, and the, and the anti-immigrant racism of the day. Uh, it may be that once we're finished with this book and uh, members of the Academy read, what we have to say about the immigration studies, that some may decide that the academy might come to some reckoning of some intellectual kind. Uh, I don't think that the academy was deeply involved in any way uh, in the fostering of policy, for example, weighing in on the sterilization laws, which were at the state level, or testifying as an academy on behalf of the immigration restriction laws of the 1920s. But they did kind of work, which was endorsed by the academy, and pursued, did establish a kind of intellectual substrate, if you will, on which the political actors and the policymakers could draw and did draw. So yes, that's, that's an interesting point. Thank you. We have a question now about the commission that you received. What do you think that the National Academy of Sciences leadership is hoping to learn from your review and analysis of its, of its history. Why don't we start with the panel? Either of you three like to address that? I'll start. When we talked with the officials of the academy in those, in those conversations about what they wanted, they said basically two things. One was they wanted a contextual history, which was different from Cochrane's history. And they wanted it, the second thing, in part, or maybe in large part, because they wanted the American public to understand how important the academy had been in American history. And they felt they weren't getting credit for what they had done. Well, that's I'm a period at the end of the sentence. They felt they were not getting credit from historians or from the American public for what they had done, what the academy as an institution had done in American history. Peter, Dan, do you want to add anything to what was said? Well, I think that I haven't really thought about that, but 
I would say that a pervasive theme in the academy's history is one that I articulated, and that is the tension between, on the one hand, wanting to play in the game, but on the other hand, not be part of the game in the sense of subjected to control by the federal government. And I think that it strengthens the academy's position not to be subject to the political control of the government or any other kind of control by the government other than for fiscal responsibility uh, with regard to what it does with government grants. At the same time, I also think that the academy can afford to be bold in taking a proactive position on essential policy issues in the United States, which it has often done in the post-war period. I can't cite chapter and verse because I haven't reviewed all that closely in some time. But I think to fear is a is an enemy of the academy and its role in American life. And so far as I know, it has refrained from being subject to fear through most of its history. And I would urge it to refrain from doing that. That is fear of retaliation. I would urge you to refrain from doing that as much as possible in the future. And I guess I would just add that one thing they might learn is how, which is kind of banal, but also just how it got to be where it is today and why certain, why it has certain policies or certain structures or certain organizations, which might appear mysterious to somebody who's just parachutes in, in 2023, but those some of those structures and organizations or policies were developed in response to a particular context or force or pressure. And that I think to gauge from some of the people who've read some of our chapters that this now, you know, they now understand why certain things are the way they are in the academy because they emerged out of a particular context. And some of this is kind of plus a change. They say like, oh my God, they've been talking about the same thing now for 60 years. But other things have changed, you know, continuity versus change. And some things changed in response to these forces. And what now might seem curious is now it's clear why this is the way it is now. Kathy Olesko would like to hear more about trust. First, she thanks you for your superb presentation. So she asked why the NAS is trusted. There are multiple ways to answer that question. I'm only going to attempt one. During the post-war period, or at the beginning of the post-war period, the academy members or the leaders of the academy in general, and, and the membership probably also, believed that they could be trusted and were being trusted because they were objective. You know, scientific objectivity was the middle name, you might say, or the objectivity of science was the academy's nom de plume. And I'll give you an example of that. It was involved in the hostility to creating what became the National Academy of Engineering and the Institute of Medicine. In a council discussion of whether or not to accede to the wishes of the clinical researchers to have their own academy, one member of the council said, you know, when we are interacting with the federal government, we give advice. When they interact with the federal government, they lobby. And, and that's the academy, and still may be the view of the academy or many members of the academy today, that scientific advice is objective. I think people come away with a misimpression if I think that we're engaged in trying to whitewash the academy's committee structure and its and scientific objectivity. 
the fact of the matter is that it's very difficult to establish a committee on any particular subject of disputed public policy involving science and technology without relying on interested parties. Everybody is interested, the, the industrial people, the government agencies, and academics as well, because academics are not divorced from the socio-political technological system of the United States. They are engaged in it through consultancies, through grants, through placing their students, et cetera, et cetera. So what you have to be careful of in seeking objectivity in reports is to make sure that all points of view, reasonable points of view, I'm not discussing the points of view of some members of our contemporary Congress, but reasonable points of view are represented in the committee process. And you have a contest of opinions, uh, which is how we try to do things in our democracy at its best. And so the contest of opinions, where all our all opinions are well represented, is the best way, it seems to me, to uh, achieve a trust, not, not only an objective result, but a trusted result. So it doesn't work all the time, but uh, after all, we live in an imperfect world and we do, I think the academy does better on average than most other bodies in that regard. So it's not, we're not Pollyannish about this. Uh, we recognize the difficulties in achieving scientific objectivity. And I would just add that we try to actually track this history of it in the academy. So in the 60s and 70s, there was dawning recognition in part thanks to the emerging field of history of science and some of the scholarship coming out of it, that this objectivity might not be exactly what scientists think it is. And that, in fact, you know, arriving at consensus, this ideal that you bring these dozen people to sit around a table and they, they will arrive at a consensus on what is the wisest one single policy that the nation should pursue. And instead, this recognition that the way people become experts is their experience they are working for, they have had grants from particular agencies, they have worked on this topic, they have consulted for companies, but that very, the acquisition of that experience gives them particular points of view, which then might not lead to consensus. So there is this kind of, and you can track the shift in the 60s and 70s, this recognition by academy members and leaders and members of NRC panels. And you see it in the reports themselves, where instead of a consensus document, now you've got dissenting opinions. Now you've got footnotes with uh, people expressing disagreements with the so-called consensus. So this recognition, as Dan pointed out, that an academy study is not going to represent some kind of single exalted consensus, but rather this kind of a Jeffersonian process of hashing it out among reasonable people. And it's not a single, I mean, the metaphor that we use, which we're not sure of, but it's instead of a, this kind of single image, it's more of a mosaic. And this mosaic still gives you a, an image of it, but it's not some kind of idealized consensus, objective consensus. Peter, when you mentioned the 60s, was there a debate or a panel or a committee to talk about the authority of the NAS or trust of the NAS? Is this something that is an ongoing conversation or was it an, an issue that the NAS at one point or periodically examines? No, this was, they didn't organize a committee to study the committees. So the academy has an, a council of elected council of its leaders, including the academy president who presides over it. Um, but there were very deep debates at this time in the council about, and Philip Handler, who was the president through much of this, was very much engaged in these issues of 
you know, what does it mean to produce a consensus report? Is it even possible? And it's, I mean, it's really interesting. I guess one other thing to point out here is the role of, you know, it's an institutional history, but the role of people is very crucial to our, to our history and to our narrative because the individual characters and personalities, they play crucial roles in the evolution of the academy. And in this case, Philip Handley became deeply personally engaged in what it meant to be objective. And for him, it was a really difficult personal realization that, you know, he was a scientist who had dedicated his career to the pursuit of truth with a capital T. And now for him to kind of grapple with the implications of this changing view of objectivity was deeply personal, but, and he's got this voluminous, uh, he's voluminous writings in the files which show him grappling this and grappling with the council as a whole. Peter, would you recount the interchange between Handler and Tom Kuhn? Oh, right. So briefly, so there was this brief period in the mid-late 70s when a few historians and philosophers were elected to the Academy, and Kuhn was one of them. And there was a particular study that had to do with legalizing pot, surprisingly enough, uh, not legalizing sale, but legalizing possession of marijuana. And the Academy president, Frank press was very disappointed with his report. He actually kind of tried to say like, this is not worthy of the academy because it's, there's basically too many political and social opinions in this. And it's basically an, a, a statement of personal of, of values rather than facts. And Kuhn wrote press a long letter kind of explaining how historians and philosophers of science had come to view the fact value dichotomy and tried to educate Frank Press, who is now the Academy president following Handler, and educate Press and the council, or enlighten them rather, on how historians and philosophers of science thought about this, the, the false dichotomy of facts and values, and the fact that for some of these academy studies, which are kind of beyond the, they're, you know, by definition, a policy study that has to engage the academy is very difficult. If it was simple, they wouldn't have to ask the academy for advice, right? And it's also advising research, advising on research or topics that are kind of beyond the cutting edge. So Kuhn points out that in these cases, you know, you can't possibly expect there not to be values involved. So and, and Press uh, liked this memo so much that he circulated to the rest of the council. And at least going forward, it looks like there was, a, again, this is kind of the historicization of the evolving perception of the ideal of objectivity among academy leaders and members. This is what I meant when I said uh, in my archival, little archival talk, that the academy archives are an amazing goldmine for historians of science, technology, and medicine. Good. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank Thank you, everyone, for your questions. And And we all look forward to getting a chance to read the whole thing as soon as it's out.